Great. Good morning and welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Frad. I am the Assistant Program Director here at Trisha. Uh, very happy to have everyone back for our next class in Your Name Shall Be Great, the Abraham Narrative with Rabbi David Silver, the founder and dean of Drisha. Uh, we have been working through this narrative. Uh, last week, we were in chapter 17 toward the beginning, talking about uh, God's charge there to the comparison in the first few verses to some of the other intertexts with Noah or with later chapters, some other places where we've uh, we've seen similar language and similar themes. So we are going to be picking up there again uh, toward the beginning of chapter 17 this morning. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Silver to get us started. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Okay, so let's pick up with, again, chapter 17 and the, hopefully the beginning of 18 today. Not going to do every pasuk, but just to refresh our memory, the beginning of chapter 17, God speaks to, uh, he is still Avram in the beginning of chapter 17. And uh, God says to Avram, to walk in my ways and become tamim. We discussed what that might mean, tamim. And I will make my covenant with you. And it's interesting that Avram is 99 years old at this time. Even in biblical terms, uh, he lives to 175, but he's called old. The Torah speaks of him, and we'll see this today. Uh, more than once, he's, he's at this point an old person, in the words of the Torah. He's old in terms of having children. And it's God is speaking to Avram here in chapter 17. And he's about to change Avram's name. So it's like he's becoming a new person, sort of a fresh start. And we don't think of a fresh start at age 99, but that's what's going on in this chapter. He's got a, he has a new name. He has a new set of uh, instructions. That which we encountered with Noah in the beginning of the Noah story. But here, we're well into the Avram story. And as far as Avram is concerned, presumably his prayer for an heir uh, has been answered because he, God heard his cries, God heard his prayer. He names his son Yishmael. So as far as he is concerned, presumably, he has what he needs. He has a covenant in chapter 15 spelled out very clearly in terms of the covenant. He has an heir, he has a descendant. And all of a sudden in chapter 17, we have a new directive. I am El Shaddai, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. And we, we are immediately wondering what covenant we're speaking about over here because the covenant was already established in chapter 15. On that day, God made a covenant with, with, with Avram. That's what it says at the end of chapter 15. So there is a covenant. So what does it mean? I will make my covenant between me and you. So the suggestion, and I we started with this last week, my suggestion is that the covenant that's referred to in this chapter is not the covenant of circumcision. That is, that is part of the covenant. It's a sign of a covenant. But the actual covenant that's being spoken of over here, and this I think we pretty much ended last week, the covenant that's being spoken of over here is more or less the same covenant that the Torah spoke, spoke of in chapter 15. 
The difference is the way the covenant is formulated. And by way of demonstration, I suggested that we have a very similar uh, situation in the book of Shemot, in chapter three and chapter six of Sefer Shemot. That chapter three of Sefer Shemot is where God encounters Moshe for the first time, story of the burning bush, the story of the snare. And God begins to speak to Moshe in the third chapter of Sefer Shemot. And God says to Moshe in Sefer Shemot, I'll just read it to you. Oh, here we have it right here. And it's down in, uh, keep going down some more after God introduces God to Moshe. I am the God of Avram and Yisrael and Yaakov. And then God speaks, um, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moshe hides his face. Then God speaks to Moshe and says, I have ro'oro'iti et oniyam yashem b'mitzrayim, so God says, I've seen the suffering, the only. I hear the cries. I know the pain. Now I will go down. So here we have the, uh, God introduces God to Moshe. Interesting, I'm the God of your father. I, that is to say the God of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. God describes Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov as Moshe's father. And then we have the instructions. I'm going to go down. I'm going to go, I'm going to go down to bring them up. Is going down and bringing up and specifically to bring them to a good land, a broad land, land of milk and honey, land of the Canaanite. That's, that's, that's over here, the description. And now we get to chapter six, um, and we notice that the description in chapter six of the land is different. It begins in chapter six, let's say the sec second verse, which is Parsha Vaera, Ani Hashem, Vaera al Abraham el Yitzchak ve'el Yaakov ve'el Shaddai, I appear unto Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov with the name Shaddai, Ushmi Hashem So the first thing we notice is that God introduces God to Moshe in chapter six, pretty much the same way that God introduced God to Moshe in chapter three. There was, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here it's, I appeared unto Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov with the name Shaddai, that's the name we encountered in the beginning of chapter 17. I did not make myself known to them by the name Hashem, Now, of course, God did make the name known to Abraham with the name Yudhei because in the covenant of chapter 15, it says, Ani Hashem, and we have this multiple times. So we have that God, not that he didn't know the name, but means through that name I was not known, presumably refers not to whether they know the name or not, but whether I, whether I dealt with them through this name, which in this context means they weren't, they were not redeemed. I made promises but I didn't fulfill them. That's the sense of it over here. 
And while we're studying these verses in the book of Shabbat, we spend more time to demonstrate that that is the pshat, actually, as Rashi says, and I think it's the simple meaning. I, didn't, I made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they never saw the fulfillment of those promises. That's the next verse. Hakimoti briti time, I established the covenant to give them the land, the land where they sojourned as, as strangers. Eretz Megurema And now God continues, and I have heard the cries of, of Israel, for as Koret briti, I remember the covenant. So here, and only here in chapter six, is an explicit mention of covenant. When God spoke to Moshe in chapter three, God did not mention the covenant, not at all. Even though in chapter two, it says God remembered the covenant with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And therefore, Lochain tell the people the following. I will take them out, Potseti, Vitsalti, Vigaalti, right? And then finally, Vlokachti. And then uh, and they will know I am God. We have these five different terms for what God plans to do. But notice the land to which God will take them. The land to which God will take them is the land of, of their sojournings, Eretz Megurehem. It's the land in verse number eight that I swore to give to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. I will give it to you or to them as a possession, Ani Hashem. And the entire speech is framed with these two words, Ani Hashem. And that the process of redemption is to know that I, they will know that I am the God who took them out. So it's the difference between, I mean, what is the difference between chapter three and chapter six in Sefer Shemot? In each case, it begins with, I'm the, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But those two statements have two very different meanings in the book of Exodus. Because in the first instance, when God says to Moshe, I am, I am the God of your father, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and God identifies Moshe as the child of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Those are your parents, those are your avot. What God presumably means is, those are your avot in the sense, and this is an important point, that I, I relate to you the way I related to them. Because Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the avot, what they have in common, and only they have in common, in the book of Preshit, is that as a group, God actually speaks to them and, and, and they speak to God. There's a dialogue between these avot and God, both directions. After Yaakov, God, God doesn't speak. God does not speak to Yehuda. God does not speak to Yosef. God may speak through riddles or dreams or whatever, but God does not directly speak, nor, does, nor do Yosef or Yehuda, for example, ever pray to God. Never. So very striking. The only prayer Yosef has, one might say, is to the butler when he's in jail. Get me out of here, remember me. But Yosef does not turn to God. So the, the dialogue has stopped. There's no prayer. Until you come to the snare when God begins to speak to Moshe and there's a dialogue which God initiates. So that's the meaning in chapter three. In that context, the land which is spoken of, the mission is to take them out of a bad place. A place of suffering, a place of Inui. To bring them to a good and broad land. That's the purpose, and that's an important purpose to escape from, bad, from a bad situation. That's in chapter three. And God, Dafka doesn't mention the covenant at all. God only mentions the covenant in chapter six, and then the land is very different. It's not a good land or a broad land. That's not what it's about. It is a land that I swore to give to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, 
It's a holy land, one might say. It's a land that the name of God is, is, is connected to the land. What's an oath if not the imposition of God's name about, on something? So, and the purpose of it clearly in chapter six, the words that frame the entire speech is Ani Hashem. It's a land which allows you to connect to God, both because it's a place where God is present and talks and there can be communication. And also presumably because in a place that's secure and safe from enemies, in a place where you don't live on someone else's agenda, then you are free to make your own choices and a free person can fully connect to God. So we have over here, the covenant of course is mentioned explicitly in chapter, in chapter six, but looking back at chapter three, it's certainly part of the covenant as well. There's no question, but notice that the, the description is very different. It's much more of a spiritual description, the land as a, as a space which allows for connectedness to God, etc., the oath, etc. And in chapter three, it's a different story, which is allowing people to be in a secure place to escape persecution. That is the purpose of the land in chapter three. So I say this by way of reference to it's interesting, by the way, I'll just add a small point. I would suggest the following. Why, is, why does God reveal the covenant to Moshe only in chapter six? Why is it in chapter six that God tells Moshe about the covenant, but not in chapter three? And here I would make the following claim. God speaks to someone where that person is. In chapter three, what we know about Moshe is that he has on three different occasions try to take the side of one who's being oppressed, whether it's the Jews being bit, bit, beaten by the Egyptian, whether it's the Jews being beaten by the other Jew, whether it's two non-Jews, the women at the well, and uh, that's the story of the daughters of the priest of, of Midian, and Moshe intervenes on their behalf. So he's very concerned about fairness, equity, justice. So God speaks to Moshe in that way in chapter three. I'm going to take them out of a place of suffering and bring them to a, to, a, to a secure place, to a safe place, to a broad land where they have choices, etc. But in chapter six, that's different. In chapter six, M Moshe has already gone to Egypt. And when he went to Egypt and tried to make things better, what happens is when he goes to Paro, he makes things worse. Because he says, let the people have a respite from work. And Paro says, no, I'll make it harder for them. And Pharaoh takes away the straw. And it makes it more difficult. And the Hebrew taskmasters are being beaten by the, by the Egyptians because they can't fill the quota. And Moshe turns to God at the end of chapter five and says, why did you send me? Lama Hariyota, why did you harm these people? Lama Zeshilachtani, why did you send me? I, it was a failure. It would have been better not to send me. It's, it's worse and not better. So Mo, Moshe has all kinds of questions. Moshe also identifies more with the people who are now suffering. He feels perhaps guilty. He's brought about the suffering. You didn't save your people. And God says, you'll see. And then God says, let me tell you something, Moshe. I made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made all kinds of promises to them. They, they saw no redemption whatsoever, but they kept the faith. They believed in the, in the, in the promise. When Rashi comments, Woe to those who are, who are gone and no, no longer around. You're not, you're not on their level. 
because because they never saw the the, the, the results of, of all their work. You expect that you'll that you'll be responded to immediately. You think things get better right away. It's a long and difficult process, but you'll see at the end of the day, uh, this is part of the process of redemption. The suffering is built in. Those were the terms of the covenant. So Moshe's own failure allows God to say to Moshe, okay, now you can connect to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a different way. Not just through this, the act of revelation, but you can, you can fully identify with them what it means actually to, to suffer in the present, but see your work in the present as building the grounds for the, for the future. And actually I would say that the reader of the Chumash might even think at this point, or might remember at this point, or might intuit that perhaps like Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov who never saw the results of their good work that maybe Moshe is gonna be in the same boat which of course he is because Moshe himself never enters the land either. He brings others to the land but he never enters it himself. So in that sense, perhaps we already intuit or perhaps the Torah sets up the expectation at this point which it already has set up earlier, but it sets it up again, that Moshe perhaps will not be one to enter the land himself. Now I, I cite all this, not because it's interesting in its own right, which it certainly is, but because I think it's a very good parallel to what you have in our chapters in chapter 15 and 17. Of course, 15 is the covenant, there is called the covenant, and 17 is called the covenant, in the middle of 15 and 17, we have the birth of Yishmael. And perhaps Avram thinks that he has succeeded. And now God suddenly has a new directive. And not just a new directive in terms of where you go, but his name is going to be changed as well. You are now a new person. You have a new name. And if we think about chapters 15 and chapter 17, they are very different in the following sense. That in chapter 17, which I would say is parallel to chapter, chapter 6, it's a very different formulation of the covenant. The key phrase over here, I would say, is the, are the words, The covenant is between me and you. Something very personal. It's something between, it's a personal relationship. And in chapter 17, there's a promise of Avram becoming Avamon Goyim. If we read further down now, in verse number four, verse four and five, uh, and your name is not Avram, it's Abraham. And you will become a, I will make nations of you, umulachim imcha yetzeyu, and kings shall, king shall emerge from you. Vakimoti uh, yetbriti binir benecha, I will make, establish the covenant, and then it says, It is precisely parallel, I think, to chapter six of Exodus, because there the key words are Ani Hashem. So here you have already in verse number seven, between me and you, and, and that the land, right? Notice the next verse. The land of your sojournings as a permanent possession. For Yiti Wahem Elohim, I will be for them a God. So in other words, is exactly what you have in chapter six, which is the land as that which makes it possible to live out the full life and to fully connect to God 
Notice that the expression over here is Eretz Megurecha. I'm going to give you the land. If you think back at chapter 15, it's very striking. There in chapter 15, God speaks about the suffering, the threefold suffering. Then we have the verse in chapter 15, the fourth generation shall return to the land. Because the sin of the Emori is not yet full. Now, that is a very striking verse because yes, it certainly suggests that staying in the land requires a certain level of, of, of behavior, of, of morality. But when you read it, you get another sense, which is very different than chapter 17, which is between me and you. It's a personal relationship. Nothing to do with anybody else. This is a land that will deepen our relationship. But in chapter 15, it sounds more like presently we have uh, some people in the land, these Canaanites, the Amorites or whatever, bunch of bums. I can't kick them out yet. But as soon as I can, I'm gonna put you there. And that's very different. The sense of it is that I'm gonna put you there because you're sort of better than the other guys because their time is up and now I'll put you in, in their place. But there's no sense about any kind of deep relationship. There's a sense of suffering and a promise and all that. But it's not about, but it's far, far removed from what we have in chapter, in chapter 17. So this is the, uh, in my view, the uh, reformulation of the covenant of chapter 15. There are no two separate covenants. There's the covenant of 15 and the covenant of 17, which is a reformulation. Doesn't contradict in a sense chapter 15, just as chapter six of Exodus doesn't contradict chapter three. It is a good land, a broad land, a safe place, etc. But the question is, is it more than just a safe place? Before I stop and take comments and questions, I'll mention that many years ago, um, I was at a conference in, down in Washington. I did a lot of work in those days. I taught for the Wexner Foundation as a teacher. And they had these conferences. Anyway, um, the ambassador to the United Nations was, was there, Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, and he spoke to the Wexner group. And um, he, his, 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 his point was, um, talked about the land of Israel, and his, uh, his idea was that the land of Israel is important for all Jews, because in case there's trouble around the world for the Jewish people, there's a safe place to go to. That's what he spoke. Afterwards, I went over to him. So that I knew my brother and everything. She was there. I said, by the way, I don't think that that is the right approach, actually. I don't think that, this was about 20, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, but it doesn't matter, it hasn't changed. I don't think that the Jew living in Oshkosh is saying, gee, if I get in trouble, I'm going to run off to the, to, to the, to the Mideast to find, to find security. Maybe they'll go to Canada. I said, I don't think that's the right approach. I don't think it's the right way to think of it either. That's the old approach. And it is true that Israel was a safe haven and is to some extent a safe haven for Jews to go. And that's not a small thing, but that has to be more than that. It's gotta be a place which, in which can be a, a place where we can live out a certain kind of life, uh, a moral life, a Jewish life, etc. That's what we, what we should be. We should, that should be the, the, the uh, the idea of Israel is a place where, which is a, a moral place, a good place, a place where you can be totally free, 
and make good decisions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the conversation we had then. Whether you paid any attention to what I was saying, who knows? But the point is, it's exactly what the Chumash has, which is that the goal is, in both places, the ultimate goal is or the words of Shemot, it's Ani Hashem. That, that's the idea. And it's true that if you're living in Mitzrayim, that you can't actually accomplish that because you're living on someone else's agenda and you're forced to live on someone else's agenda. In fact, we're coming up to a book that we're going to read this week, which is called Megillat Esther, which poses exactly that poses exactly that 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 problem. How do you live in such a world where the king of the world is Achashverosh, and his right side is Amalek? How do you function in such a world? Is it possible? How, how do you? That's the question of Megillat Esther. That's the core issue in Megillat Esther. But this is the description of um, this is a description of. Uh, of the covenant as it presented to us in the Chumash in chapters 15 and 17. Okay, I'll stop you and take comments or questions. Just one second. I wonder if you said this and I didn't notice, but that's what the POSIC itself says. Why? That's exactly what I said. That's exactly my point. Yeah. That the purpose is to become, it's the purpose of, in both places, here and there in Exodus 6 and over here in, in Yud Zion, yeah, that, that is the goal. The goal is to be a, a place where you can fully connect to God. In the Chumash, a, a slave can fully connect to God because a slave can make the choices. So therefore, you need a place of freedom. And I would say by extension, you know, uh, the idea being that to set up a society which reflects your values and not living up someone else's values. This is the dream, the ideal. The fact of the matter is that no matter where you are in this world, it's a global world. There are all kinds of pressures. So we never fully live up to that ideal, but that's the aspiration, is to create a just society. And that I think is what the Chumash has said already. And this is hinted at, I think, in chapter 15. Because the point of chapter 15, why must in fact you suffer first? Why must you undergo Geirut, Abdut, and Inui before you possess the land? So one way to understand it is because if you suffer, you are the Geir, you are the Mu'le, you are the Eved, you know what it feels like. And that's what the Torah said in, towards the end of Sefer Shemot, V'haftem et ha-ger, ki gerim he'item b'yeretz Mitzrayim. In other words, you know what, it is, what's, what it's like to be a slave or, or a marginal person or abused. So when you create your society, don't impose it on the other. Make sure that this, there are safeguards in society so it doesn't happen where, where you live. So I think it's hinted at already in chapter 15, but it's much more explicit in chapter 17. The goal is Ani Hashem. That's the goal. In you, Venecha, the land is, is, is useful in that, in, in, in that pursuit. That was my point. Yes, exactly as you said. It reminds me the slogan for Soviet Jewelry, Shalach et Ami. But it's shalach et ami ve'yavduni. It's skipped. True. Does anybody else have something to say? I have a, a question. Um, it relates to something you said last week. Yes. Um, and it's the first uh, verse of um, chapter 17. Yes. And contrary to how Safaria translates it, I wonder if it means also you go ahead of me, inviting Abraham to sometimes 
be ahead of God with thinking, for instance, with Sodom, that he's inviting him to call me on it if I'm, if I'm wrong. He's, he's, he's inviting him for... Um, right, so the, yes. with... so the point is that, yeah, we suggested that last week. Actually, the, uh, the, uh, the Ramban actually says more or less what you're suggesting, which is as opposed to, to go with God, to go before God. So my formulation last week was that to be able to, to make your own decisions, kind of autonomous decisions, but to understand what God would have commanded you before God commands to be put yourself in this place where you can figure out what you should do without being commanded. Uh, your point, point is slightly different. It's that you go ahead of me, for instance, with Stom, right. where you will point out when I'm wrong and you will correct me. Okay, I'm not correct. There in Stom, God actually invites Abraham to talk. There's an invitation there. Mm -hmm. So that, that I'm saying something different without an invitation. In Sodom, and we'll get to this probably next week, God said to Abraham, you know, I, I'm not going to conceal from you what I plan to do. Mm -hmm. So God ex pretty much explicitly invites Avram to speak. I know you're very concerned about Sadaka and about Mishpat. And then Avram turns to God and says, Mishpat. You, 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 but are you concerned about Mishpat? But that's an invitation. In the case of Sodom, God actually invites Avraham because God says, you know, I'm gonna, I, can't, I can't hide it from you. You care so much about Sadaka and Mishpat, such a wonderful thing. Then Avram turns back to God and says, but what about Mishpat? What about tzedakah? Maybe they're at tzaddikim. So the very term tzedakah mishpat are the two key words in Abraham's prayer. So that's an invitation. I'm actually saying more than that. I'm saying with no invitation. I'm saying what God is, and I, I don't think it's about contradicting God so much. I Questioning God, maybe. I think it's more about understanding what you're supposed to do without being told what to do. Mm -hmm. And in point of fact, I mean, to me, that's what the, that's what the chumash is actually about. Because the truth of the matter is, you could have a million code books. Code books are not going to help you. Maybe they help to some extent, but the code books aren't going to tell you what to do in most situations. It's only not going to tell you the important decisions in life about where you live, what kind of family, what kind of work you do. There's no shulchan aruch for that. So everybody's got to figure out what is my task in this world, what is my mission, what is my you know. What is my service? And that's a personal decision. You try to figure it out. You try to sort of intuit what, what God demands of you. But that's the question. Can, can you actually figure that out? It's a good question. But I think that's the point over here of walking before God. Walking before God means you don't need to be commanded. I, I gave the example of, of the Akeda where Abraham looks behind and he sees a, 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 a ram, a, he sees a ram entangled in the brush he sort of figures out it's going to be, he goes and he brings it as a sacrifice. God never told him to do that. But he intuits that that's what God must, must, must mean. When God says sacrifice Isaac, God must have meant sacrifice Isaac or Isaac's proxy. Sacrifice Isaac symbolically. So he figures it out by himself. And that becomes the place of the, of the base of Mikdash. That's the, that's, and that's the climax of the Akedah. So the point then is, and that's the goal. The, the story of the Torah is the movement from slavery to freedom. Slavery from freedom. That's the story of the Chumash. And freedom means you're free to make decisions, to make choices. Nobody tells you what to do. 
And yes, there were there's a there's a there were guidelines without question. But they can't cover every case. So my point I was pushing for, and not just in that verse, but in the Chumash in general, that the goal is actually kind of autonomy. The goal is to be a free person, but to be able from that place of freedom, having understood more or less the direction that the Torah wants us to move in, to be able to make good choices without being commanded. Because after all, how many you could have 100 million commands that wouldn't cover every, every possible situation. Everybody's different. So that was my point. Your example is a good one, but there actually God invites Abraham. We'll, we'll, well, I'm also thinking of Moshe who um, at some point tells God, don't kill all the people. In other words, that he's inviting Moshe and Abraham. But God invites Moshe. But God invites Moshe to say that. No, no. I'm saying, well, God doesn't invite you. To be partners, full partners with him, not just. Yeah, well, okay, put it that way. I'm just saying those cases, we're not far apart over here. I'm saying that there, in terms of prayer, the golden calf, God essentially invites Moshe to speak. In mm -hmm. the case of Sodom, God invites Abraham mm -hmm. to speak. God doesn't invite Abraham to speak at the binding of Isaac, and Abraham doesn't speak, actually. Right. We'll get to that maybe someday, but there's no invitation. Okay, anybody else have anything to say? We're going to continue that. Yeah, just, yes. about, about four, about, um, it, I, I just bumped into, into it in the Talmud, and it's about, and it's uh, in regard to, uh, it's in Megillah in the, in the Talmud, and, it, and it's talking about the reckoning of the 400 years yes. that is set explicitly, which you have been, uh, you know, like not bringing up because it doesn't work with your hypothesis of, of that, 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 that we're being set up to know that Moshe is the fourth generation, is, is of the third generation and will not be entering the land. The, the idea of the 400 years, as the Megillah sees it, is that, is that the clock starts from the, from, from the cutting of the covenant. It starts with Abraham already. So there's an ambiguity for sure about what the three generations that will, that will not see the land are. That's possible. I'm not sure that's a contradiction, though, actually. Uh, I mean, first of all, I will 1,000% I will stick by what I said as being the Pshad and the Chumash. The, the, the Gemara is bothered by a different problem. That three generations and four, and forget that, forget what I said. What the bothers the Gemara and bothered not just the Gemara, all the Midrashim and the Gemara in the works, is how do you reconcile 400 years, or actually in the Chumash it says 430 years later, with three, with, 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 with three or four generations. There's no way to get to four generations in 430 years. Right. So that's the Gemara's problem. How, do you, how can you reconcile both the 400 years on one hand and the three and four generations on the other? That's true. So they, some say it starts from the, uh, from the birth of Yitzchok. Some say it starts from the covenant in chapter 15. I don't see that as a, I, I don't see it as a, as, a, as a problem for me. It's a good question in general. I don't see that as a problem, and there are other. Uh, there actually are other ways to reconcile them, which actually doesn't contradict me at all. That is, doesn't even make it. It, re it removes even 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 the ambiguity. But I can't get into that now. So what Casuto suggests, which I think is very probable, about how to reconcile the four hundred years with this with the four generations. The Gemara speaks of two hundred ten years, actually. Redu, you know, which is more or less what four generations might be, two hundred years. There's no way to get to four hundred, so it's a good question in general. I'll have to leave that for now. Anybody else or we'll continue? Yes, I have a question. Yes, go ahead. Um, how does 
do we justify that God says to, to Moses that they, you know, he will take the people out and they will go to the land when it's clear God being omniscient knows that they're not going to make it to the land. Their children will, but Moses and the, the people he leads out uh, who are adults, let's say, um, will not. But he's That's telling true. them to, to say, you're going there. Well, I would say two things. First of all, that's the aspiration. That's the goal. The goal is to bring them there. Whether you make it or not, people have free will. They, you know, their behavior suggests they themselves don't want to go. They say, let's go back to Egypt. So what are you going to do, force them to go? They say explicitly, we don't want to go. But the second point, which I think is better, is that in the Chumash, the Chumash does not discriminate between the generations. The, the people can be this people or their children are also considered the people. I mean, that's very central to the Torah. And in fact, that's what we celebrate every year. In about a month from now, we have the holiday of Pesach, where we celebrate the exodus from Egypt, even though virtually every person that left Egypt dies in the desert. We don't see it that way. We see that we left Egypt because the, it's the connection of the generations. So I would say two things. Number one, what God is saying is this is the goal. There's always room for human error. And the second thing is that in a sense, they do go. They go through the children. The, the linkage of generations is something that the Chumash speaks of very strongly, even the way the covenant is built. Three generations of suffering. The fourth generation returns to the land. But the three generations of suffering are part of the covenant because they, they're, they're necessary. The covenant is built on, these, on the generations of suffering. So the link between, between generations is central. And it's true that the, the, the specific people that Moshe took out of Egypt, for the most part, don't enter the land, but the Jewish people enter the land. That's what I would say, those two points. Okay, let me get now to a second, uh, to a second issue that comes up here, and I wanted to discuss that. And that is, um, the, in this chapter, uh, in this chapter, uh, Abraham is told that his name is changed. And this is found in chapter 17, uh, the beginning of the chapter. It's verse number, um, verse number uh, three, five, excuse me, verse number five. Avraham, Avraham, goyim So your name, the change of a name, the father of Hamon goyim, so the extra hey, relates to Avhamon Goyim, Avraham, and I will multiply you, make you great, and kings will emerge from you, umlochim im So that's what we have over here in these psukim in verse number five and verse number six. And now if we move on in the chapter, <coughs> we come to verse number 15 and verse number 16, here we have two parallel verses. He's ready, Avraham. So Sarai becomes Sarah. The Torah doesn't explain the difference between Sarai and Sarah. It's a good question. And then, but we have a continuation. I will bless her. And I will give you a child from her. Again, a blesser. She will become nations, give rise to nations. 
kings of nations will, will, will descend from her. So the first thing we notice is immediately the parallel between the two. There's the change of name in each. There's the blessing of a multitude of nations and the blessing of kingship as well. I would add to this parallel, which is very striking, that it's a parallel, which if you think about it, the Torah uses exactly the same term for both of them, which is kings will descend from you, kings will descend from her. And the same thing with Abraham, he's the Av Hamon Goyim, and uh, kings will descend from you. When you think about it, actually, it's a very strange thing to say in connection with Sarah, rulers of peoples or nations shall descend from her, it can't possibly mean the same thing that it means with Abraham. Because with Avram, what it means is many different nations will descend from Abraham. Because after all, you have Yishmael, who has a very big family. He has 12 princes himself. And then you have later in the Chumash, Abraham marries Keturah, like chapter 25, and they have six children. So Abraham is, in fact, the father of many nations. So therefore, since nations have kings, right? So we understand what that means. But what does it mean to say, nations will descend from, from, from her? What does that refer to? We can't ref it, presume, it could refer to her own. Whom, whom does it refer to? It's, it's not exactly the same thing. It could be that it refers to the, the Amim, perhaps, are the tribes of Israel. But how many kings of the tribe? There is a dynastic line. Could maybe refer to Esau as well, who descends from, from uh, Yitzchak, possibly. But the point is, um, it's, it's very strange. It's, 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 it's very indirect. So it sounds like the, what the Chumash is after, this is my point, even though they're, they're, they're a little different, but the Chumash is trying to maintain a parallel between Sarah and Avraham, kind of equality between the two. So it uses more or less the same language for both, even though the situations are not identical. And here there's something else interesting, which is that when it comes to Sarah, God said to Abraham, Sarai, your wife, do not call her Sarai, ki Sarah Shema, her name shall be Sarah. So God does not speak to Sarah, but God speaks to Abraham and says, your wife Sarai, don't call her Sarai, call her Sarah. So in other words, it's interesting that the command over here, it says something about Sarah, but it's put in terms of what Avraham should do, how Avraham should treat his wife or behave towards his wife or recognize his wife, not Sarai, maybe the union is the, the possessive, not my princess, but princess, queen of the world. Possibly that's what's involved over here, but it is striking that on one hand, what God is emphasizing is that the, the, you, you, you're now a new person at age 100. You, 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 you have a new name, you have a new identity, and so does she. And life begins now at age 100, or 99 or 100, and the same thing for, for her as well. That's actually very striking. And I will see, this is a very central point in, in, in chapter 17 and also in chapter 18. Now, when Avram hears this, when he hears this, he laughs. In verse 17, 
Haraven so a man of 100 years old bear a child, have a child, father a child, and can a Sarah bear a child at age 90? The Ramban points out that for a man in those days at that age to have a child at age 100 would not be impossible. And in fact, Abraham later has six more children. But he probably means can a 100-year-old man have a child together with a 90-year-old woman who, who have lived together for many years with, with no children. So he laughs. Oh, that Yishmael might live by your favor. Would that Yishmael live before you? And now God's response, nevertheless, or in truth, or however, the word avol is a critical word here. Sarah, your wife, is going to give Sarah Ishtacha. God emphasizes always Sarah, your wife, will bear a child for you, and you will name him Yitzchak. And I will establish my covenant with Brit Olam Acharav, and my covenant will be established with him. The subject of chapter 17 is covenant. Now God makes it clear. The covenant is with him. As far as Yishmael is concerned, U Yishmael Shematicha, I've heard you. Yishmael, right? His name is Yishmael. So Abraham's thought initially, this, this was the answer to my prayers. Now God says, I hear you concerning Yishmael. All kinds of blessings. Numerous blessings. He'll have 12 chieftains. All that is true. However, in the next verse, next verse, verse 21, yeah. But the covenant is with Isaac. This time next year, she will have a child, and the covenant is with Isaac, and God then checks out. Now the question is, and this is, I think, a critical question, what is Abraham saying? How, first of all, how do we understand Abraham's laughter? And what does it mean, what does that mean? So I have a, what I believe is the, more plausible understanding. My understanding of the story here is this, but prior to that, I will say that many of the commentaries, the Targum and the Ramban follows in this direction, presume that Abraham's laughter is not a laughter because he doesn't believe what God says or he doesn't accept it. He laughs out of joy. The Targum says, v'chadi. he laughs out of joy but then he's concerned, but what about Yishmael? Does that mean Yishmael is nothing? I, 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 I understand, okay, that's wonderful news. I'm so happy, it's great news for me and for Sarah, my wife, Sarai Ishtacha, Sarai Ishtacha. But he, he loves Yishmael, that's his son. So what about Yishmael? Don't worry about him, Shmaticha. He has wonderful blessings, tremendous blessings. Not just Ma'od, but Ma'od Ma'od. But the covenant is with Isaac. That's one way to read it. In my view, that's not the best reading of it. But what is driving them, I think, is the following. What is driving this interpretation? Apart from, I presume, the desire not to have Abraham a doubter. 
or, or kind of ingrate. So he's happy, he's overjoyed, um, fine. But what's, what's bothering them, what's driving them towards this interpretation, I think is the following. That in the next chapter, which is chapter 18, we have the uh, guests that Abraham encounters. Chapter 18 begins with Vayera Hashem Abraham Be'onei Mamrei. That's chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 18. And uh, Abraham is sitting, Petach Ha'oel Kechomayom. He was sitting at the entrance of the gate as the days grow hot. Why is he sitting at the gate, the, the, the entrance to the, to the Oel? Why is he sitting there? Rashi says he was sitting there to see if any strangers are coming. He wanted to be Machnis Orchim. So he was sitting by the door of his tent to uh, see if he could welcome people into his house. We see from the story, he's very magnanimous, very generous when it comes to welcoming strangers, etc. That's certainly true. For Rashi, that's why he's actually sitting at the, at the, at the Petach Oel. The Ramban says in two words, that's not why he's sitting at the tent of the Oel. He is very generous with the strangers, of course. Says the Ramban, he's sitting by the tent of the, by the opening of the tent, because that's where it's cool. It's actually a very interesting point in the Ramban. It's very true that the Bedouins actually, the Arabs, Bedouins, they know, they, they know how to build. They live in the desert and they build their houses in such a way that they understood about, about green before the West. They know how, where you position your tent makes all the difference in the world. So maybe Rashi didn't even know about that, but the Ramban is in Spain. Maybe he had a better idea, who knows? In any event, that is certainly the pshat. That, I mean, it could also be to welcome the guests, but it is true that sitting by the, by the, by the, by the, by the door of the tents, if it's situated properly, is much cooler. In any event, we know the story. So with three people are coming, the three people are, let's, let's say God's emissaries, okay? We'll get more into that maybe next time, but they're God's emissaries. If you look down some more, and Abraham, of course, demonstrates tremendous generosity towards the strangers. He says, they're passing by. These are not people that want to sleep over in the night. They're passing through. So he knows that, he says, before you, before you continue on your journey, let me give you a little water. When you rest under the tree, I'll give you a slice of bread. And he gives them a whole big meal. Pat Lechem, he, has his, he runs to Sarah, bakes some cakes. He runs off to the herd, he takes a calf. He, he pre prepares it, he hurries, he's, he's hurrying to do the, to, to, to do the, uh, to bring the guests in, he does it quickly. Chemav curd, milk, and calf, all meal. And not only that, he also waits on them. he waits on them. So this is an act of, the man's a hundred years old, just that circumcision. But the point is, incredible generosity towards the absolute strangers. And now in verse number nine, so they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And they answered, she's in the tent. He said, she's in the tent. Then one of them said, I will literally return to you next year at this time. And behold, Sarah will have a, a son. And Sarah was listening, could hear. She was could hear or was listening or was or could hear. And from the door of her tent, which was behind him, who are Harabs. In other words, they're talking in such a way where Sarah can actually hear. 
I think intentionally. Now the Torah says, Abraham They were old, as we know. Abraham and Sarah were old. Sarah had stopped the way of women. It means basically she can't biologically have a child. That's what it actually means. So they're very old. So now, and Sarah just heard this news. So the next verse is, scroll down there. Sarah laughed to herself inwardly, saying, Now that I'm withered, I will have enjoyment or refreshment. And my Adoni, my, my Lord, referring to Abraham, is also old. She refers to herself not just as old, but sort of withered. And God speaks to Abraham. Why is Sarah laughing? What does she think? God can't do anything? That there, there is anything too wondrous for God? I'll return to you at the same season next year, and Sarah will have a son. So what's bothering the commentaries clearly is this. How come in chapter 17, when we have virtually identical language, we have in chapter 17, Abraham laughing. And Abraham, and the language over there of Abraham's laughter is, um, Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said to himself, can a man of a hundred years, years beget a child? And Sarah, a woman of 90, can she give birth? So it sounds like it's exactly the response of Abraham. He says to himself, and he said to himself, he's thinking it's not possible. And over here, and God says nothing. But God says, but in truth, but in truth, Sarah will have a child. And you will name him Yitzchak. So God does respond over there. But it doesn't, they're not reading it as a as a as a as a rebuke to Abraham. But over here, God says, Why is she why is she laughing? Why is she laughing? Is there anything impossible? So therefore, Targum, Dramban, many others presume that the laughter of chapter 17 and the laughter of 18 are actually different. Abraham's laughter is not a laughter of doubt, but of rejoicing. And the laughter of Sarah is a laughter of doubt. And therefore, God calls Sarah on it, but doesn't call Abraham on it. That is a, I would say, maybe the classical understanding of chapter 17 and 18. I personally don't buy it. And I'll tell you why. It's certainly possible. Ramban suggests it and many others. But it strikes me as a very strange interpretation for any number of reasons. First of all, I don't believe that God doesn't rebuke Abraham in chapter 17. I believe God does rebuke Abraham. And that's the word avo, which may mean in truth, but it could also mean but. Abraham, you I know you have doubts. <clears throat> now, he kept his doubts to himself. He didn't say anything. He's thinking it. So God says to Abraham, listen, Abraham said, let's, Abraham said, would that Yishmael live before you? Which perhaps could be interpreted as, that's very nice, but what about Yishmael? In other words, not the way others understand it is, that's great, I'm glad the covenant Isaac, does that mean Yishmael is totally out of the picture? To God says, no, he's not out of the picture. 
He's in the he's in a picture, but not the picture. He's in a different picture, picture of great power and great success. That's true, but covenant not. But there's another way to read what Avram is saying, which is that's a very lovely thing. He says to himself, "It's hard to believe, but okay, whatever." But what about let's let's get down to the important thing. Yishmael, the one the the answer to my to my prayers. Because he never he never prayed for, for he prayed for his child his child never prayed for her child, oh very nice I'm glad whatever it'll happen it won't happen what about Yishmael, to which God says no no Sarah's going to have the covenantal child Yishmael will also be blessed, but you you're, you're misfocusing over here, what I'm trying to tell you is it's going to be Sarah, so that I think is first of all I think you can read into seventeen, a a, a critique, but when you get to chapter eighteen. With Sarah, there's something very strange, which Ramban himself notices and deals with, which is the following. Why is God rebuking Sarah altogether? Why would God rebuke Sarah? We maybe Abraham may know, in fact, Abraham may know that these three people are God's emissaries. And in fact, uh, the story begins with, and this is a big question in chapter 18, it says, God appeared to Abraham. The Torah says it's Hashem that appears. Maybe the three strangers, one possibility is they are God's representatives. They're like, we call them angels. An angel is a malach, a messenger. They're God's messengers to carry out. And then they say, one of them says, I'm going to come back next at this time next year and Sarah will have a child. But maybe Abraham intuits that these are not just three people at this point, but they're three messengers of God. That's possible. But how would Sarah intuit this? She's not in the conversation altogether. She's sitting in her tent. She's listening to the conversation. Why would she think necessarily that it's that this is God speaking? Maybe it's just uh, people saying, oh, you know, you've been so nice to us. I want to give you a bracha. You know, something does something good for you. Let me bless you. Uh, you know, let me give you a bracha. Why would, why would we condemn Sarah or rebuke Sarah when she is not in the conversation altogether. She's simply overhearing it. If you want to believe that the uh, that Avram intuited it, why would we necessarily assume that Sarah intuits it? So the point then is, if you presume that to be the case, which I do, then we have a different question, which is that when Sarah is hearing this, she laughs. It, it means that actually, it means she has no idea. It sounds so strange to her. She can't imagine this could possibly be true. What we can't fathom for our lives is when God said to Abraham in chapter 17 that you and Sarah are going to have a child, and not just a child, but the covenantal child. Now you get to chapter 18, which is a bit later, obviously. How much later? Who knows? <clears throat> Turns out that Avram never informed Sarah of this conversation. She has no idea, which, which is the Ramban already asked the question, why not? You win the jackpot, you know what I mean? You come home. You don't say anything. A couple of weeks later in passing, someone comes to your house. Congratulations, I'm so pleased for you. Yes, yes, it's wonderful. I never thought I'd win $150 million in the jackpot. And the wife said, what? What's that? What'd you say? Are you kidding me or what? <clears throat> it's a joke, right? <clears throat> no, I, I, was, I was gonna tell you later, you know, that kind of thing. So if we presume God doesn't speak to Sarah, God is speaking to Abraham, and I, my take on it is that when God is re rebuking Sarah, God isn't re primarily rebuking Sarah. 
Because how would she even know? Why would she, why would she expect this? She, strangers are talking. The rebuke is more to Avraham than to Sarah. Now, it is true that it may also be a rebuke to Sarah in some sense, but the primary player in the, and it's true that the people speaking want to make sure that Sarah hears it. Where's Sarah? Why are they asking where is Sarah? It's because they want to make sure that when they're talking, that she can hear. And Sarah Shomad, Petach Alob it strikes me that what you have over here is a different picture. It's a picture of somebody who, I'm sure he's very happy for Sarah, but his primary focus strikes me is actually Yishmael. It's not Sarah. It's not Sarah's child. His concern is his covenantal child, his son. His son is Yishmael, as he named him. And that I think is the, is the issue in the story. And this issue, namely, what is Avram really thinking? What does Avram really want? We know what God says. But in point of fact, there is one thing that leads me in this direction. I'll say what it is, and I'll take comments and questions, which is the following. This is chapter 17 and chapter 18. We have the promise is given to both. I talked about there is a kind of sense of equality of the two in these chapters. And they both are blessed with child, fertility, kingship, change of name, two different messengers are coming. The second messengers presumably are coming more to tell Sarah than to tell Abraham who's already been told. They're, they're telling him the time is now, it's gonna happen now, that's true. But she doesn't know at all, she's completely in the dark. So now we have this situation where Avram knows for sure that the covenant, which the Torah spoke of in chapter 15 and 17, at the heart of everything is the covenant will be carried on through Sarah's child. And now we have two chapters later, in chapter 20, Avram's traveling to Gerar, and he gets to the city of Gerar, and for the life of us, we don't know why he's gone to the city of Gerar. And what's the first thing he says in chapter 20? He says in chapter 20, let's find this, you have it over there, chapter 20? Yeah. Yomer Avraham First thing he says, he comes to the city for anything. She's my sister. And Avimelch, the king of Gerar, takes her. It's actually mind-boggling if you think about it. This is the woman whom God has told you more than once. Twice. To you, twice. To Sarah, covenantal child. The whole covenant rests on her child. I mean, he should protect her more than anybody in the world. This is his future. He comes to the city of Gerar, town of Gerar, and he says, this is my sister. And last time he said that, she was taken. And lo and behold, in the very next verse, she's taken. And there it's without explanation. It's not that we have to go there because of a famine. We have no clue why he went to Gerar. So it actually does raise the question about what Avram is thinking in terms of Sarah. If he truly believes, notice that when God speaks about Sarah consistently, Sarah Ishtacha keeps emphasizing Sarah, your wife, Sarah, your wife, Sarah, your wife. In this chapter two, we'll get there. So the, this leads me in the direction of Abraham, here's what God is saying, hearing it and fully accepting it are two different things. So I, that's my take on the story. My take is that he doesn't, if he fully understood it and accepted it, why in the world would he say she's my sister? She's my covenantal partner. And in point of fact, in chapter 20, if you remember, 
after God intervenes on behalf of Sarah. Return the man's, she's a married woman. In verse number three, God intervenes. And then later in the chapter, God goes to Abraham and Avimelech goes to Abraham and says, why did you lie to me? You could have gotten me killed. And Abraham says to him, among other things, I didn't lie to you. She really is my sister. So actually, this is at the heart of the entire Abraham narrative. This strikes me as a critical issue, which is does Avram understand that Sarah is his, his wife, 100% the wife, and the only wife. Because if he doesn't understand that, that leads us in the direction of Avram not fully comprehending that her son is the covenantal son. Yes, God said it. Yes, Avram heard it. But did he fully embrace it? That's the question. And I think a certainly plausible reading of these chapters is that he doesn't fully embrace it. Because had he fully embraced it, there is no way he would ever say, this is my sister. He probably shouldn't have said it in any event, given the history of what happened last time he said it. But he does say it. And that leads me in the direction that actually the laughter of Sarah, which seems much more innocent than the laughter of Abraham, is in fact uh, the, the critique of it, criticism of her laughter, is certainly not directed only at Sarah, but directed at Avraham. And it takes me back to the verse that we read before, Sarai Ishtacha, Sarai, your wife, your wife. Don't you call her Sarai, her name is Sarah. It's put in terms of Avram. You don't call us Sarah. You have to understand who she is. And I think the rest of these chapters, 17, 18, 19, 20, till you get to 21. In 21, everything changes. But till 21, there is, I think, not a full understanding and embracing of how this family is supposed to work. Okay, I want let me stop at this point and take any comments, questions, or whatever you may have. Only, only because nobody else is speaking up at the moment. Um, just to come from the dark side, surprisingly, what just occurred to me is, is, is actually that that uh, he's going to grow may exactly may, may mean that exactly he understands exactly what he is doing. He is repeating exactly what he had done in Egypt, because he understands that that he could be that he and she could be the first generation who undergo Gerud. Avdud and Enoi. And he is setting up for that to actually happen. God makes that not happen, though, in terms of Enoi. I think it already has happened. I, my, my point, it's, it's already happened in chapter 12. Which no, no, but I, mean, but I mean, literally, I mean, literally being, be, becoming not just symbolic of, of, the, of, the, of the nation, but really being the first national generation. Right, but I'm saying I, I, I think that's already happened also. I think that if you count the generations out, Avram is certainly the first generation. In the book of Breshit, Avram is generation one, Isaac is generation two, Yaakov is generation three. And the fourth generation that returns to the land or conquers it in some sense are Yaakov's children. That's the story of Shechem. But, but whatever he's thinking, my point is, whatever his, his motive may be, I think that, I mean, we sort of grow up with, I think what's driving them obviously is that it would, it would be quite disturbing to suggest that God is, says explicitly to Avram in chapter 17 something and that Avram does not fully seem to embrace it is probably what's driving them. On the other hand, it strikes me that given all the different uh, stories and with all the different factors, 
to me, this is the most plausible reading of the Chumash. I, I think the other reading strikes me as not fitting as well into the words, it's distinguishing with the two kinds of laughter when the Torah compares them completely. They're thinking exactly the same thing. I'm old, she's old, she's old, I'm old, etc. Avram's prayer for Yishmael to rebuke only in chapter 18 to Avram, saying, you must call her Sarah. And then later, chapter 20, which is striking, saying she is, in fact, my sister. After the fact, he says it, after she's taken and returned. Now, I didn't lie to you. I don't see her as a wife primarily. I see her as a sister when the Chumas is screaming that God is saying wife, 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 etc. I think that's what drives me in that direction. But I leave it to you to think about it and to about where you think the most plausible interpretation lies. It seems like there's a conflict between Hashem and Avraham here because Hashem is saying to Avraham, why didn't you tell him what I told you? And Avraham is kind of saying, why didn't you tell yourself? I don't know if Avraham is saying tell yourself, no. but I mean, the point is, I'm not saying, look, it's not a question of does he have to tell her. My point is, why wouldn't you tell her? I mean, <laughs> you have this great news. You got this unbelievable piece of news. Uh, which is remarkable given the fact that from a purely, I would say, biological standpoint, as we would see it, it can't happen. This is a very important point, and this, we'll get to this maybe next week or in two weeks. The Torah says, It's not just that she's old. He's old. He's old. As the Ramban says, he could still bear a child. He could have a child. It's clear. But she actually can't have a child. That, that's, I mean, not by, by, by any, based on the science of it, as we would say today, it's not, it's not possible. So the point is she will in fact have a child. It can only happen through some kind of divine intervention. Yeah. So that's that. That's the good news. And wouldn't you want to share the good news? I gave you, you win the lottery. Avraham uh, is a little bit, uh, Avraham is traumatized in the sense that he was given and it was taken away. Yishmael, I mean, he's, he's pre-punished on a certain level. His achrayut is initially to Yishmael. So that's a problem. Right, but it, that's true. He is concerned. About, I, I understand the concern about Yishmael, which is totally legitimate. And that God says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, you have, and all that. But the covenant is not with Yishmael. By the way, I want to mention something since you made that comment. I want to mention something else about Yishmael, which is in chapter 16, when our God runs off into the desert and we discussed that chapter. The angel instructs her to go back and to accept the suffering. She doesn't want to do that. And finally, the angel, okay, you don't want to accept the suffering in the future. That's fine. You have a blessing, etc. It's going to be good. You'll have a child. And then the angel says to Hagar, He'll be a, a wild ass of a man. His hand against everybody and everybody's hand against him. And the reader of the Chumash understands from that point immediately, this is not the covenantal child. There is no way that the covenantal child can be described by God as a wild ass of a man whose hand is against all and all against him. That's completely, we don't know why it's true yet, but the reader understands well that this cannot possibly be covenantal. He can be very successful. He can be very powerful. He have great wealth, but he can't actually be covenantal. Because the covenantal, I mean, even before you read the rest of the Chumash, the covenantal, we, we, what did we read earlier about the covenant? It's about connecting to God. It's about seeing the land of a place of your sojournings. It's seeing the land is not actually your land. 
seeing it as God's land. I live in God's land. And this is the holy land because God swore the name of God is bound up with the land. It's interesting, by the way, that oath means you impose God's name. The temple, the holy of the holies, is called the place in which God's name, where my name is found. So it has nothing to do with wealth, with power. And it's certainly, I wouldn't describe the covenantal person as para adam, a wild ass of a man. So we, the reader, know. That's, we know right away he's not the right guy. But Avram doesn't necessarily know that. I agree. So Avram prays for Yishmael and God answers him. But the answer is what the reader expects. He has a blessing. He's your child, etc., etc. But let me emphasize aval, but. I think it means but. It means in truth, but it means but. However, however, I'm talking about the covenant. Let's, Avram, let's get back to the, what I'm talking about. I hear what you're bothered by. I'm talking about a Brit. This is her child. You and her, your, your plural, you, your child. Not the one that you pray for yourself, give me a child. It's not, it's not your, it's, it's your collective child. That's the point over here, and that's repeated again. And he laughs and she laughs, is this possible? And the answer is, with God, all things are possible. Yes, Laszlo, what do you want to say? Okay. Uh, um, Rabbi Silver, can I say a word? No. Remembering that Ayeka is not such an innocent geographical... I agree. I, agree. I had it in mind. Ayesara Ishtecha, I think, is a critique. Yeah. I, so I agree with you on that. Just 100%. It's a critique. Yes. Who has something to say? Yeah, I had a question. Go ahead. Uh, but not a question, but a comment. Go ahead. Uh, it seems that uh, you're saying that... Uh, Avram really didn't understand the situation with regard to his son and regard to his wife. It seems yes. that Rashi's comment at the time of uh, the Akedah as to why God had to make these repetitious identifications uh, as to what he, which son it is and so on, uh, that it aligns with your interpretation. Yes, it is fully in line with it. I think that's the point of the Akedah, actually, which we'll get there. Point of the Akedah has to do with making it clear to Avram and through Avram's actions, actually, that he that Yitzhak is the one and only son. In fact, the Akedah, as you point out very well, God speaks of Bincha Yechidcha, your only son. And he has more than one son. And he loves the other one too. But in point of fact, covenantally, he has one. And that is, I think, the, the purpose of the Akedah. Okay, I'll take one or two more questions and we'll stop. But, if, yeah. uh... I have a if I, could, uh, if I could just mention also, uh, following the what you've said about vayagar um, begrar, um, another meaning of the word. Um, the whole purpose is turning from gerut to eretz Magurecha, but implied in the word um, ger is also mikol Tai itzilani, a sense of fear or alienation, and one wonders whether. Uh, following your train of thought, that Abraham, uh, as much as he may have uh, on the surface looked tamim, um, he had some doubt. And uh, part of his uh, fear and anxiety was to go down to Grar, and he didn't completely believe it. He was not in complete tamim, perhaps until the Akedah, as you just say. So, look, I would say the following. The very fact that he, in chapter 20, can talk about Sarah as his sister, suggests to us that it isn't called lack of faith, called lack of understanding, called its credibility or whatever you want to call it, no matter how you slice it, chapter 20 is very extremely problematic. Um, so I, whether the word Mogar does mean 
can mean fear. That's true. And the, whether it's fear, whether it's doubt, whether it's, you know, it's, it is an unbelievable because there has to be a miracle over here for it to happen. It can't happen just like that. So, you know, however, we, the Torah doesn't really, I think, give us psychologizing, but I think what we can see is that it's certainly chapter 20 in particular, certainly suggests that he hasn't, I would say, fully embraced the idea that he and Sarah are going to be the parents of this covenantal child. That's for sure. And then we'll have to see what, how 21 and 22 play out in this respect. Before I take the last question, I think Wendy had a question or a okay. comment. It's a I comment. Want to mention, just one second, Wendy. I want to mention that tonight we have a Patricia program. I myself yeah. am teaching in it. It's about the Megillah. And the issue is, is, is go, where is God during, where is God in, in, the, in the Megillah? And there'll be two classes, one at 7.30 by Rabbanit uh, Leah Sarna, followed by my class about uh, a, a way to read the Megillah. Okay. Should be an interesting program. Yes, Wendy. My comment is that I think from Sarah's laughter and what either she says or thinks in her head, that Avram has committed a bigger sin here in that he hasn't even in, been acting in such a way as the pregnancy could occur. Well, he doesn't and even tell her. Let's start with that. Like doesn't not only didn't tell her, but that oh, he has not acted in a way that could result in a pregnancy from him. Not right, I, I, miraculously from God. No, I agree with you. They're not, the Ramban is very bothered by this. He, he has all kinds of terutsim. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think it's very problematic that she she doesn't know. She doesn't know, which is rather striking. And so he points yeah. us in the direction that he either he thinks it's not that important, mm -hmm. or he doesn't, or maybe he has some doubts about it altogether. But uh, all right, we'll continue next week. I did want to again tonight. We have that uh, class, uh, that program on the McGill. It should be very interesting. Okay, thank you all. If any other comments, you can send me an email.